You're listening to Film School, the on-air, online source for independent film, film that's changing the way we look at cinema and the world. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Today we'll be speaking with Roberta Grossman, the director of Blessed is the Match, a mother and daughter story set against the backdrop of the Holocaust. You can listen to our talk with Roberta Grossman as well as interviews with Noah Baumbach, Haskell Wexler, Harmony Kareen, Albert Mazels, Philip Glass, Frederick Weissman, and many more online at filmschoolradio.com. Blessed is the match. It's the life and death of Hannah Finish, a documentary about the World War II poet, diarist, and resistance fighter. It was quite amazing what went on in her, uh, but 23 years, was it, how old she was? Yeah, 23 years old. And uh, just a little bit about the story. She was part, among other things, she was part of the only military rescue to save Jews during the Holocaust. That just is amazing. That was really remarkable to hear that. Sinesh's poetry and diary have inspired readers for generations, kind of like an Anne Frank character here. She was born, Mm -hmm. Anna, in 1921 in Hungary and became involved with the Zionist movement when anti-Semitism became more prevalent in Budapest. She moved to Palestine in 1939, uh, where she settled on a kibbutz. And uh, what was interesting about that is because she was born into an intellectual family. They they were a bit disappointed, or at least her mother was. Mm-hmm. Uh, her mother was alive at the time that mm-hmm. she went to Palestine. Now they were expecting her maybe to be uh, some sort of intellectual. Mm-hmm. Instead, she went to a kibbutz and uh, got into farming. She became very, very uh, supportive uh, by actions and by... Indeed, uh, in the support of a Palestinian state, she was a Zionist uh, yeah. who believed that uh, that in order for the Jews to be able to survive, they needed a, a national state, mm-hmm. and uh, she went there. She not only said it, but she she followed her, her words with actions. So. And, and when uh, Nazis invaded Hungary, mm-hmm. she took it on herself uh, to join a group that was going in to try and rescue some Jews. Yeah. Uh, she uh, uh, learned the radio. She had a, a key to a lot of their operations. Yeah. Because she what, knew passwords, code words. And, yeah. and parachuted yeah. Uh, behind en- enemy lines. At 22, 23 years old. Yeah. Just made her mind up that this was the right thing to do. Yeah. And uh, a very stubborn woman, too, is what you learned through yeah. the film. So, yeah, the filmmakers were given unprecedented access to the uh, Sinish family archive. On the 9th of June, 44, I went with Hannah towards the Hungarian border. I wasn't happy, but Hannah did not want to wait anymore. Just before she crossed, Hannah Senesch handed him some piece of paper, some poem she'd written. And that was, blessed is the match. Blessed is the match, consumed in kindling flame. Blessed is the flame that burns in the secret fastness of the heart. Blessed is the heart, with strength to stop its beating for honor's sake. Blessed is the match, consumed in kindling flame. Hannah Senesch understood small gestures can mean very big things. That's what the poem Blessed is the Match all about, about the one candle that can illuminate the whole darkness. She understood what one person can do. 
against every odd and in the most difficult circumstances. In her new film, Blessed is the Match, our guest today, Roberta Grossman, gives us the first documentary feature about Hannah Sanish, a World War II-era poet and diarist who became a paratrooper, resistance fighter, and modern-day Joan of Arc. An award-winning filmmaker with a passion for history and social justice, Grossman has written and produced more than 40 hours of documentary television. Roberta Grossman, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, where did we reach you? Where, is, where are you calling? Or where are we calling? Uh, I am in a car, uh, ah. in, a minivan, in a minivan to be precise, driving with my family from uh, Arizona to uh, California. Wow. Well, that, how's the scenery right now? Wow. Uh, very pretty, very uh, rocky and... Desert-y. Yeah, yeah. Very I always, nice. I like that trip too. It's it's time to clear your head out. I I've enjoyed it a few times. And, yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for taking the time on your on the journey sure. back. Yeah. yeah, we wow. appreciate it. Now, w- when did you first learn about the story of uh, Hannah Sanish? Well, I first read Hannah Sanish's diary when I was in junior high, right. which was a long time ago, right. and um, it, it, her diary had been published in English. Um, and I just sort of fell in love with her. She was right. just so. Uh, uh, self-deprecating and self-searching and just trying to make sense of the world. And, you know, I was right at the right age in junior high to really be taken by that kind of thing. And I I always uh, wanted to make a film about her and uh, tried to start making that film pretty much right after I got out of college when I became a filmmaker. But it took many many decades until it actually came to be. Now, uh, first of all, was it required reading or was it something you just had an interest in? How how did that happen, that you happened to pick up the Hannah Sinish's biography? It was not required reading. I just, from a very early age, I was uh, strangely obsessed with the Holocaust. So uh-huh. uh, anything that I got my hands on that was on that subject, I, I read. Well, that was your study when you went to school, I think, in Berkeley. Am I correct? Uh, it, at Berkeley, I was a history major, and I, I studied modern European history, and I did my senior honors thesis on the SS. And, and you say that you pretty much were preparing for this film since then. Uh, what what were you doing in, in the meantime? Were you getting to know these people? Were you compiling uh, artifacts about it? Or were you just kind no, of organizing no. it? No, I, I, I was, uh, from time to time, I would try to mount the project, write proposals, try to raise the money, never successfully. Um, in the meantime, what I was doing was uh, growing up, um, making those, you know, 40-plus hours of, documentary television and film that you mentioned in your very yeah. generous introduction. Um, and so when, when I came back to it, um, and by that time, um, I, happily, I was everything was different because I had those other films under my belt because it's a pretty daunting subject to take on an iconic yeah. figure. Um, and also by that time I was a mother and I was closer in age to Catherine Senesh than to Hannah. And so working with the film's writer and co-producer Sophie Sartain, um, we realized that the way to tell the story was from Catherine, the mother's point of view, and I think that that makes all the difference in the world in the film. So I'm really happy that it took as long as it did, because my focus shifted and my point of view shifted, and I think um, made for a much better film than I would have made as a as a 20 year old just getting out of college. Well, l- let's get into a, a little bit about this uh, relationship that Catherine had to Hannah. Yeah. Describe that for us. Get the dynamics involved there. Well, Hannah uh, came from a very well-established, somewhat pretty well-known, uh, upper-middle-class, highly-cultured Jewish family in Budapest. Um, her father was a famous playwright and uh, columnist for the newspapers. He was a comedic uh, columnist. 
And he died when Hannah was six years old, so that left Catherine, Hannah's mother, to raise Hannah and her brother, Giera, who was two years older than she was, um, by herself. Also, uh, Catherine's mother lived with them. Uh, And they were of reduced means at that time, but a very close-knit family. And I think that Catherine recognized, I mean, I think probably most parents feel this way, but in Catherine's case, she was actually right, um, that her daughter Hannah was very unique, very special, very brilliant, incredibly talented. Um, and um, most importantly for the way her life took shape, incredibly strong-willed. And uh, once Hannah made up her mind about something, that was it. So I think that as they got older, they were close, but as they got older, there was tension between them, especially when Hannah uh, decided just almost out of the blue um, that the solution to her life and to life of Jewish people was Zionism and the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. And that was not a popular um, movement in Hungary. Hungarian Jews were incredibly well assimilated. Um, so people, Catherine, first and foremost, thought Hannah was crazy, um, but she uh, let her go, and really against her will, but she let her go to Palestine. And uh, Hannah basically got out just as the war started, um, and that's why she was in Palestine and able to participate in some kind of resistance uh, when the time came. And she spent how many years? Two, uh, three years? In, pa- in Palestine, yeah. I think she was there for, I'm going to say, three years, yeah. perhaps. That sounds right. Yeah, three or, three or four. It wasn't that long. She went to a girls' agricultural school, and then she joined a young kibbutz. And it was not long after that that she was recruited for the mission. Now, now, just for sort of historic context, the people that were in Palestine, the the, the Jews who had come to Palestine during that period of time, what was the uh, sort of the uh, relationship that, to the uh, to the people of the area that the Palestinians at that time was there was there a lot of tension? Was there was there already a sense that they were uh, they were beginning to uh, want a political state for, uh, or how, how was the dynamic during that period of time when she was there? Well, I'm not an expert on, um, you know, the Middle East or the dynamics, but suffice to say that I think that the early Jewish settlers um, were not fully uh, aware of what 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 they what they were going what they were going into, mm. um, and there was both. Um, a much better relationship than there is today mm-hmm. um, in terms of a, a much more living side by side mm-hmm. um, and also but there was there was there was tension too I mean violence started um, you know very early on but I think that compared to today today when Hannah was there there was almost a period of you know, uh, you know a peaceful period between um, the incoming Jews and the surrounding Arabs but not entirely I mean there was always you know, self-defense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, groups of the different kibbutzim and settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, the Jewish communities that purchase land, they in large part purchase land from absentee landlords, mm-hmm. um, and those absentee landlords perhaps didn't take into account um, the people who were living there. And I think at, at a certain early stages there was a certain amount of innocence in this. Also, there was, uh, on the part of the Jewish settlers, also the Jewish settlers went to places where there weren't people and where the settlement hadn't been. You know, the famous stories of the, the Jewish, that the Galilee area mm-hmm. um, was like swamp land, and they cleared the swamps and created basically an agricultural paradise. So, you know, it's a very checkered and complex history. But I think from Hannah's point of view, there wasn't some sense of superiority to the Arab people. I mean, in, in Hannah's case in particular, there's a story that is her diary where 
one of the girls at the agricultural school at Nahalal Halal um, falls in love with one of the, a young Arab um, man in a nearby village. And the head of the agricultural school is forbidding the girls to associate with anybody outside the school, and in particular with the, you know, the Arabs. And Hana stands up and makes an impassioned speech about, you know, the rights of people to everywhere to, to you know, to freedom, freedom to love and all that. So she, I think if she um, had lived, perhaps she could have been a positive uh, uh, voice in this ongoing and mm-hmm. miserable debate. Now, uh, the title of the film, uh, Blessed is the Match, I, I just want to be sure our listeners know exactly where that came from and, and, and what in, inspired you in particular to choose that as, as the title of the film. It's, it's from a poem of hers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, the poem, Blessed is the Match, um, is a poem that Hanno wrote right before she crossed the border. She'd already parachuted into Yugoslavia and spent months with Yugoslavian partisans. Uh, and she had decided uh, to, even though Hungary in the interim had been invaded by, by Germany and was, all the conditions had changed and it was extremely perilous, even more so than initially, um, to cross over the border into Hungary, she had decided to go on into Hungary. And she wrote the poem, Blessed is the Match, uh, what I think is basically a suicide note, and the, her idea is trying to explain her motivation, as I understand it. Um, blessed is the match consumed in kindling flame. Uh, blessed is the heart to stop its beating um, for honor's sake. So she's basically saying, you know, perhaps one candle can illuminate the darkness. Perhaps one small act can, you know, have a larger impact. Um, so it's, it's a way for explaining her motivations for what may seem like a crazy mission. Um, and so I thought it was an apt title for the film. Yes. Did you did you uh, have that uh, poem in mind uh, uh, back at Berkeley time as a title of the film? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, now, now we're we're speaking with Roberta Grossman. The film is "Blessed Is the Match." Um, the uh, now uh, Hannah decided to go back to Hungary. Uh, what event sort of triggered that 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 she she felt she needed to go back and be a part of the resistance? Well, um, you know, in 39 and 40, um, there wasn't that much, you know, news coming in to Palestine uh, about what was really going on in Europe with European Jews. And in in, in Hannah's case in particular, Hungary, the Hungarian Jewish community, was the very, very last at the end of the war, not until 44, where they were deported and and wiped out. So, uh, but starting like in 41, 42, news started really coming into Palestine about what was really going on about the mass extermination of Jewish people in Europe. Uh, And I think that the people living in Palestine, these news reports were about their sisters and their brothers and their parents and grandparents and and uncles back home, and there was a a desperate... uh, search for what, what could be done, what could we do, what could they do. And so this mission was formed by the leaders of uh, what was called the issue of the Jewish community of Palestine to try to send uh, a group into Yugoslavia to make contact with the Jewish communities uh, in Europe and try to steer up resistance among young people, among Zionist youth in particular, uh, and also to try to bring people out to sort of an underground railroad to the Yugoslavian person. I mean, the idea was that they would establish this space and then they would keep it running and keep it going, but primarily to try to organize resistance on the part of Jewish youth. I mean, they didn't know that, for example, by the time Hannah and her group reached, you know, the border of Hungary, that all, most young Jewish men... Uh, Jewish men in, in general uh, had already been taken away in mass to labor camps. So this idea of 
organizing resistance was uh, a bit naive in a way. Um, and also, uh, they had not had firsthand experience of, you know, the crushing uh, strength and uh, violence of, of, of the German machine. Not to say that somebody shouldn't have stood up, but anyway, they, yeah. that was the idea, that they would try to do something. In Hannah's case in particular, her mother was trapped in, in, in Budapest, and she wanted to try to get there and personally bring her out. Well, and that, that's a fascinating part of that the story. But I just wanted to emphasize to our listeners the swiftness the, and the, the severity and swiftness of the Germans' uh, actions when it came to the Hungarian Jews and how quickly... They were, uh, uh, they were. The slaughter began. I mean, it was really quite stunning. It was Especially 40, at the end of the war. Yeah, so this is forty-four. I mean, it, it, I didn't. Now, again, I mean, you. The more you know and find out about the the circumstances of the Holocaust, the just the more harrowing and scare. I mean, just totally. Uh, I don't even the words. I, I'm I'm having a hard time describing just how awful this this was and and. Uh, well, it's shocking it that, is. that at that point in time yeah. that they would move so swiftly to uh, exterminate a population. And and I, it seems that Hannah wasn't quite ready for that. Am I right in saying so? Um, I, yeah, I don't think that they really knew. They, did, yeah. they didn't know the extent of what, of what was going on. Um, I mean, but even, you know, people, the people in um, Hungary, you know, had heard rumors, but they didn't know the extent of what was going on either. I mean, the Germans yes. were very good at keeping their killing machine uh, very quiet, a very secret. Uh, so that took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, in, in, in the case of Hungary, the, when Hungary was invaded and the SS came right in, you know, on the heels of the, of the Wehrmacht, the German army, and within eight weeks they had deported and killed 700,000 uh, Hungarian Jews from the province of Hungary. Interesting. 400,000, sorry. That- and, and as you point out in the film, this is 44, the, the German high command knew they were going to lose the war. Right. I mean, this sort of, all these circumstances. So th- th- this, there was, I mean, not that, th- I can't even say this, it seems, sounds bad to say it this way, but there was nothing strategic at all. This was just a matter of just slaughtering as many people as they possibly could. There was nothing strategic in the war against the Jews uh, anywhere. No, uh, I didn't. I mean, there uh, was no, 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 yeah. but I mean, there was some attempts. There was an overlay in the camps uh, to have Jewish slave labor, but it, what, what was happening was that the uh, you know there was a faction of the SS, the Secret Service that ran the, the concentration camps and the labor camps that wanted to profit and you know have Germany profit from the, from slave labor, and there was slave labor all over Europe. Yeah. But there, the, then the sort of the ideological division of the SS that just wanted to get rid of the Jews and you know, to exterminate the Jews under the cover of war. Those two things were really at odds. So you had slave laborers who weren't fed. Um, and who were uh, wiped out by disease, so you didn't really have a very effective uh, labor force. Yeah. So there was two things were really working at odds in quite a uh, nightmarish and hellish way. Yeah. Um, in the case of, uh, of Hungary, uh, not only was there no strategic uh, overlay at all, because most people were just sent immediately to the gas chambers that were you know, deported from the provinces of Budapest, but also... Um, uh, you know, as you said, the Germans knew that they were going to lose the war. I mean, the, the Russians were, you know, in shouting distance, probably, of, of liberating uh, of Budapest. Um, the war was nearly over, and by that time, the world did know. There, there's incontrovertible evidence that the world did know about the gas chambers by that time, uh-huh. uh, all over the world, all the heads of state. 
Um, but they, you know, for, you know, we can debate until the cows come home, but they made decisions that, that they didn't want to um, divert resources to bomb the tracks to Auschwitz or anything else. But that was the time when they could have done it, was to prevent the uh, extermination of the Hungarian Jews, because everyone knew. So there was no, there was no, we had no idea, and uh, the, the, the Allied High Command, do you hold them responsible uh, for, for what happened? Well, I hold the Germans well, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, not, yeah. Well, I'm being very inarticulate right now. You, but I'm, you, you, I mean, I, what I'm saying is there, they, there was no excuse to not be able to, to not for the... I think they should have done it. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I think that it's very hard in, 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 in hindsight to judge, you know, those kind of decisions in wartime. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was a pretty uh, nasty war, and um, they should have done it. Yeah. What's incredible about the narrative of this, of this film and about the narrative of what went on in their lives is that... Uh, Hannah and her mother, Catherine, were reunited yeah. in just about the worst circumstances possible. Uh, what made? Uh, how did you decide to get them together? And what was it like filming the, uh, the a, a bit of docudrama to to cover those scenes? Well, I mean, that was you know there are a lot of incredible coincidences and you know unbelievably painfully dramatic moments in, in Hannah and Catherine's life. And one of them was that when Hannah across the border, she was immediately arrested and taken to a jail in Budapest, um, where she was interrogated by the um, back and forth by the Hungarian military and the uh, German SS. Uh, and once they realized that she was who she was, who, what her true identity was, um, they brought in her mother to, because Hannah wouldn't uh, break. Hannah wouldn't reveal, even under uh, you know, beatings, etc. She would not tell her what she possessed was so important was her radio code, her British radio code. Yeah. Once that, you know, they, she, she was caught with her radio. So they realized she was part of the you know, British spy network. Uh, and Hannah wouldn't uh, tell the radio code, and so they arrested her mother and confronted them, and that way they hadn't seen each other in five years, and basically told Hannah, you know, tell us the radio code or you'll never, we'll kill your mother, you'll never see her again. And they told Catherine, convince your daughter to speak to us or you'll never see her again. And the two of them, without any really any ability to, to, to speak or confer, um, just by looking at each other and knowing each other so well, um, just didn't talk. They just decided yes. that it was, you know, that they, but Catherine says in her memoirs that Hannah had reason, you know, if, if Hannah wasn't talking, she had good reason not to talk and she wouldn't. She wouldn't try to convince her otherwise. So there's an amazing amount of love and respect between. Amazing, it really is an amazing. Now, now we have have painted, uh, and of course, Han is a heroic figure. But there's one gentleman. uh, It was Reuven Daphne who said uh, at one point in the film, uh, "I don't want to destroy the uh, the Joan of Arc image of of Hannah, but I didn't like her." Right. I thought that was unique. What what was his problem with her? Uh, Hannah was, I'm sure, to, to. could be incredibly irritating. I mean, she had total confidence in herself. She, she thought she knew what, she, what was right all uh-huh. the time. She uh, was not a person who really saw things very much in, in, in shades of gray. Uh, and uh, I think she also was was somewhat disinterested in uh, amorous uh, interactions with with boys. Um, and so she, uh, I, I'm sure she rubbed in the wrong way. Yeah, I had a feeling that maybe Reuben had been turned down by Hannah. Yeah, Terry. it's possible. I can't. I can't say yeah. for sure. Yes. I can't say for sure. But uh, I think a lot of people. Um, you know, there's another part of the film where one woman who knew her at the keyboard says that she was a statue. You know, that she uh-huh. was so high-minded and so idealistic that she was kind of hard to relate to. Yes, now, 
this project is 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 over for you except for reaping the rewards right now it's it's a beautiful film what are you Thank doing you. now uh, lots of things. One of the things that um, our company, Katahdin Productions, which is a non-profit documentary um, production company, we're making uh, a, a four-part documentary on contemporary Native American history from 1890 to the present day. And closer to the Hanasana story, we're working on uh, a documentary about the song Hava Nagila. Oh, okay. All right. Very yeah. good. About well, the song. Wow. Yeah. yeah that, that's a curiosity. I'd really like to... Yeah, that uh, sounds uh, interesting. ...let us know on, on all these films, but Havana uh, uh, Gila sounds uh, uh, fascinating. Can you give us a little uh, hint as to where that came from, a little little teaser on Havana Gila? Well, the full, the full name of the song of the, of the film is Havana Gila, What Is It? Yeah. Because the film is, is so, uh, you know, uh, there you go. The film is so, you know ubiquitous, but nobody or very few people really know where it came from yes. and what it means or what its history is. Um, it actually has a hundred year, over a hundred year history, starting in the Ukraine and ending up in the United States or and beyond now. Um, you know, you go to YouTube and there's hundreds, even thousands of Havana Gila sightings there, everything from, you know, Russian figure skaters dancing to it to, you know, Thai drag queens. So it's a pretty amazing <laughs> uh, journey. Yes. Um, that Havana Gila takes, and that's what the film's about. Very good. Well, very good. It's wonderful talking to you today. The film is Blessed is the Match. Roberta Grossman, thanks for being a part of Film School. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about Film School, upcoming guests, and archived interviews, go to filmschoolradio.com.